Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. In this future-gazing podcast series, we consider speculative scenarios and provocative prophecies to give us a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. I'm Anne McElvoy, Director of Audio here at The Economist, and for the next few months, we'll be taking our inspiration from articles in our annual publication, The World in 2020. In this episode, we'll be asking, how will Japan be affected by hosting the Olympic Games next year? This is a chance to show people that it hasn't disappeared, that it's still there, it's still got technological verve. And can science fiction help predict trends in 2020? For the most part, science fiction writers, even though they may be setting their stories in the future, are really writing about the present. But let's start with the tricky problem of how to tax the tech giants. It seems every month in almost every country, there are news stories or politicians bemoaning the relationship between the tech giants and how they're taxed. But could 2020 be the year that the international tax system is at last dragged into the 21st century? To discuss this prospect, I'm joined by Matthew Valencia, The Economist's Deputy Business Affairs Editor. Hello there, Matthew. Hi, Anne. So why is 2020 such an important year for tax? multinationals? Well, 2020 is the deadline that the OECD, which is overseeing multilateral talks, has set for coming up with a global deal. There's been growing anger. A number of countries, a large number of countries, have been getting increasingly upset about the levels of tax that multinationals, technology companies and others have been paying or rather not paying. And the OECD has been tasked by the G20 with coming up with a solution that's acceptable to America, Europe and to other countries. What does a global framework of taxing companies look like today and why is it so inadequate? Well, it looks out of date and the reason is that it dates back to the 1920s. It's a system that's treaty-based that was essentially set up for companies of that time, which were companies that made things, manufacturing companies, producers of goods. And of course, these days you have a, a much larger number of services companies firms that have assets which are intangible, intellectual property, other intangible assets which are are more easily moved around and they can be moved to tax havens. And that's what we've seen increasingly. There's been a huge increase in the games that companies have been playing with their assets. And the system just hasn't kept up, basically. Given that these companies have been mobile for a long time, even if it's increasing, why is it taking so long to come up with a universal framework about what could change? Well, one reason is that America has resisted for a long time. And one reason it's done so is because a lot of the big multinationals, the big tech companies are American. And the United States has been a reluctant reformer here. They've grown more willing to to look at reform, to look at change since a big domestic tax reform under Donald Trump a couple of years ago. So that's one reason. Another reason is just that this is fiendishly complicated. Tax is so complicated. And it's complicated enough if you just look at America. If you take it as a global issue, you look at the taxing rights that countries have, the different claims on the tax revenue of big companies operate in many countries. It's a very difficult nut to crack. And what would change look like from your point of view? What would you think is doable? Uh, It's a good question. There are different views on this. I mean, at one end of the spectrum, you have um, NGOs, you have a group of independent economists who are pushing for uh, a radical solution, which essentially is a completely new system whereby 
you would look at companies in the round, you would look at their worldwide operations and you would say, okay, this is their overall business worldwide. This is the money they make. These are their global profits. Now let's look at a bunch of metrics, employees, assets, capital, where their customers and users are, and let's use those metrics to to divide up the spoils, basically, and to sort of split the taxing rights along those lines. That's not how things are done at the moment. That would be a radical departure. The way things are, are done at the moment is they're based on this rather complicated system called transfer pricing, which involves looking at multinational companies as if they're groups of unrelated firms and so that subsidiaries in different countries are supposed to deal with each other at market rates as if they're unrelated parties. Now that that's a, a complicated system. It doesn't work terribly well and a lot of people including these critics I was talking about think that that's essentially a system that's based on a fiction. I would say probably the best that can be hoped for is a messy compromise and one that probably doesn't produce that much more tax revenue for governments than is um, currently being raked in. And if there is any prospect of this global tax deal coming off, what would it look like? What would success be? Well, I think success would be a fairer division of taxing rights. I mean, at the moment, the so-called residence countries, countries in which these multinationals are based, are registered, which tend to be big advanced economies, they tend to get probably a bit more than their fair share. Tax havens get a lot more than their fair share, as the critics would say. And then, you know, you have a lot of countries in the developing world and elsewhere that um, where multinationals have big operations but are perhaps not getting their the share that they deserve in terms of tax on the profits. So I think a deal will move more in that direction and will will give a fairer division of, of the spoils. But in terms of how far it will go and how different it will be from how things are today, it's difficult to say, partly because, you know, these things, I mean, tax is one of those issues where you always end up with messy compromises when you're dealing with international issues. So all in all, do you think 2020 will be the year that something material changes here? I think there will be progress in 2020. They might miss the deadline, but if they don't do it in 2020, they'll come up with some sort of a deal, I think, soon after. The question is whether that's the final deal and how it works. It's possible that they come up with some sort of a compromise and then pressure grows again for something more dramatic, more radical in terms of moving away from this current system that's stuck in the past. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thanks, Anne. Next week, take a trip to Japan. The International Olympic Committee has the honour of announcing that the Games of the 32nd Olympiad in 2020 are awarded to the city of Tokyo. It was over six years ago that Tokyo was awarded the hosting of next year's Olympic Games. And as such, all eyes will soon be on Japan as it prepares to showcase the country to its global audience. But how do the country's leaders intend to use this opportunity to Japan's advantage? Joining me to discuss this is Sarah Burke, the Economist's Tokyo Bureau Chief. Hello there, Sarah. Hi. This is the second time that Tokyo has held the Summer Olympic Games. The first was in 1964. So how did Japan approach the task then? 
Well, it was a big deal back then. You know, the war had only just ended or fairly recently ended, and Japan really wanted to use those Olympics to show that it was a different sort of country, that it transformed itself. It was no longer militaristic, but instead it was a, you know, peaceful and responsible member of the international community. So that was a big thing for them in that sense. And it was also a chance to showcase what Japan later on became known for, which is technological innovation. So things like the bullet train, for example. And so what's the approach like today? The rhetoric is in some ways similarly bold as back then. Japan is sort of demographically challenged and feels like it's lagging behind, is being overtaken by other countries such as China in terms of technology. And so it sort of wants to use this as a chance to show people that it hasn't disappeared, that it's still there, it's still got technological verve, it's still an upstanding member of the international community. In fact, it wants to show that it could perhaps be a leader or more of a leader than it currently is. Whether in reality it's going to match that is a different question. That's very hard to do at the moment. But uh, there's a lot of rhetoric that's very ambitious. Now, you mentioned that Japan showed off its technical innovation last time it hosted the Games. Will this also be a key part of what it does next year? Again, there's a lot of talk about it. So you see big headlines in the newspapers here talking about how there'll be robots out doing things like picking up sports equipment from the field. There's a talk of using a flying car to light the Olympic flame. So far, the flying car doesn't seem to be doing much flying. It seems more of a car. So again, it's a, it's sort of unclear whether the, what the Olympics and all these promises will live up to the rhetoric. But that's certainly the aim. Let's take a look at the political aspects of hosting the Games. Are they being seen as a way to give Japan a leg up on the international stage? Yeah, indeed. And this is where it might be that the effect is more in line with the ambitions. So Shinzo Abe, the prime minister, since he came back to power in 2012, has been really sort of keen to have Japan noticed on the world stage to play more of a role. It's obviously hampered by its constitution, which prevents it from waging war or taking part in war. But, you know, he's very keen that Japan is more assertive and it's done things to that end, such as lead trade deals um, and other such things. So, yeah, he's trying to use this as a chance for people to look at Japan and think, oh, gosh, yeah, this is a place that can do things and is doing things. Well, we've looked at how Japan wants the world to see the games, but how are they viewed inside the country itself? I mean, like all Olympic Games, there's a lot of criticism from people who think they're costing too much and they're not going to get anything out of it and the tickets are too expensive and there'll be foreigners trekking all over the country, dropping litter and getting drunk and throwing up on pavements. And other people are obviously very excited about it. There's a lot of hype. It's in the news. It's in the media. You see lots of logos and things being sold already. So it's sort of a mixed bag internally. I've got to ask, have you got a ticket? Um, I actually will be leaving Japan before the Olympics, so sadly, no, I, I haven't. Oh, that might leave one on the block for me. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you very much. Now, staying with the Olympic Games, there are a number of new sports being introduced or reintroduced next year, including karate, basketball, skateboarding and surfing. But there's one sport in particular that might be new to more than a few of the spectators, and that is sport climbing. Tim Cross, our technology editor and resident climber, leapt, or should I say, reached for the chance to find out more. Right, let's have a quick go at this one. Nice. I'm in the arch climbing wall in Bermondsey in South London. I'm really pushed with the left foot. Go on. Nice, good work. 
hanging around too long. For me, this is the sound of my Monday evenings, but for the person next to me, it's part of his daily job. His name is Matt Cousins, a former British bouldering champion and a member of the route setting team at the Arch. Hi, Matt. Hiya. So before we get into what a route setter is, how did you get into climbing, Matt? Um, so I started climbing at my secondary school when I was 11 years old. And um, yeah, we had a really cool teacher who was kind of psyched on climbing. And at what point did you decide to make a career out of it? So when I left school, I was actually a mechanic for about eight years, worked for my dad's business. And it kind of got to a point where I felt that I was almost good enough to kind of give it a go a bit more seriously. And you then became the British bouldering champion, so I think that was a pretty good call. Yeah, it was about three months after I quit my job that I became the cha- uh, British bouldering champion, yeah. And so for people who don't know, what's the difference between climbing and bouldering? And you hear all these words thrown around. So bouldering is kind of low level, up to about four and a half metres, climbing above safety mats, about 30 centimetres thick. So no ropes and no one delaying you? No ropes, um, yeah, kind of pretty free, but... You know, you're not climbing that high, so it's relatively safe. And of course, climbing's now been accepted at the Olympic Games, so we'll see it in, in 2020. But given that it covers such a, a variety of things, how are they actually going to run it there? I mean, presumably they can't just all decamp to a mountain in Japan. Um, no, so it's basically they've combined the three disciplines, so bouldering, lead and speed. Um, you can kind of break it down into like the hardest moves, which is bouldering how far you can go, which is lead, and how quick you can climb, which is speed. So sort of power and gymnastics versus kind of endurance and technique versus just raw speed. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, they've combined that and it will be the combined results which will gain you a medal. And climbing's got much more sort of popular, I mean, in the time that you've been doing it, I guess. You know, the Arch, I know there used to be uh, one gym down here in Bermondsey. You've now got three across London. The number of gyms in the, in the city, I don't know, it, it feels like it's growing very, very quickly. What do you think's made it so, so popular? I just think it's, it's like so accessible. You can just turn up at any wall, do a quick intro, hire a pair of shoes and you're ready to go. And that's, I guess, the advantage of the indoor walls versus outdoor climbing. I mean, there aren't that many crags around here in London. For people who don't know, the south of England's pretty flat. So the indoor walls kind of give you a chance to, to give it a try if you don't live somewhere where nature will provide. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think there's, a, there's a, almost like a culture now where a lot of people just climb indoors for climbing indoors. Whereas in the past, it would be you'd climb indoors to train for climbing outside. But now it's only thing. And the Olympics, I guess, is the epitome of that because all the climbing will be on the sort of walls you would get indoors. Yeah, yeah. And I guess one thing that makes climbing different from other sports is, you know, if you do a 100-metre race, the race track is always the same. On climbing, every route is different, right? And this gets into your job as, as a route setter. Yeah, so I, I, I set the routes here at the Arch and across um, a few other walls in London. It's more of a, like a physical puzzle and it's kind of my job to make it as interesting as possible, really. And how does that work? Because presumably the competitors, you have to account for people who are sort of tall and have a long reach or people who are a bit shorter, people who are flexible, people who are strong. I mean, is it hard to make it fair if the route's different from competition to competition? Yeah, it is. But I think that's what's great about climbing is that there's not one particular body shape. For example, in basketball, everyone's got to be like seven foot tall. In climbing, there's so many different shapes and body types and kind of those shapes are, are, are good at different things, different aspects of the, of the sport. 
And it, it started out as a sort of extreme sport, I guess, if that's what you want to call it. And it, it has this outdoor legacy that you talked about, you know, climbing outside in, in nature. There was a little bit of pushback from some people, wasn't there, when it was announced as an Olympic sport. I remember Adam Ondra, who's one of the best climbers in the world. I think he was unhappy about the inclusion of speed. Other people have said, look, we're, it's, it feels like the sport's kind of selling out a bit. What's your... Yeah, I, th I think the main kind of sticking point with that was to combine everything into this combined format. But the way I see it is that there was only one medal available, or gold, silver and bronze available. So it was a chance to showcase the sport as a whole. Rather than picking one discipline, they kind of combined it all together in the hope that in the future there'll be a medal for each individual discipline. The idea is that this is just the start. Yeah, I think so. So in 2024, there's going to be two medals for climbing. So speed will be on its own and bouldering and lead will be together as a combined medal. And final question, who are your hot tips to the Olympics? Who should we be keeping our eyes on? Oh, I've got to go Andra. I've got to go Andra. And for the women? It's open. It's anybody's game. But yeah, I'd probably go for Shauna. Shauna Coxie? Yeah. Another British athlete? Yeah, I'll, I'll go for Shauna. She was the British bouldering champion the same year you were. She was, yeah, yeah. Great, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. That was Tim Cross talking to Matt Cousins. And finally, predicting the future can be a very dangerous game. But here at The Economist, we don't waste time reading the tea leaves or looking to the stars for inspiration. Instead, we turn to science fiction. And for our annual publication, The World in 2020, Tom Standage, the deputy editor at The Economist, draws from a wide range of science fiction sources. And to discuss how and why, he's with me now. Hello there, Tom. Hello. The real Tom. Now, why science fiction? Well, many people, particularly who don't read science fiction, may imagine that it's mostly, you know, it's set in the future. It's mostly predictive. Actually, it isn't. But there are a few cases where, where it is. Specifically, I'm thinking of a, an episode of Star Trek from 1990. So it was Star Trek The Next Generation, Captain Picard in his prime. And there's a particular episode that involves a planet where there's a, a violent separatist movement. And um, at one point during the episode, Commander Data refers to the history of these sorts of separatist movements back on Earth and says, of course, humanity has overcome this sort of thing. I have never subscribed to the theory that political power flows from the battle of a gun. Yet there are numerous examples when it was successful. The independence of the Mexican state from Spain, the Irish unification of 2024, and the Kenzie Rebellion. Yes, I'm aware of them. Now, this was so controversial at the time that this episode was actually not shown in Britain or it was shown in edited form. And it was only shown in an unedited form relatively recently. But of course, given all of the uh, uncertainty that's going on around Brexit, there's recently been opinion polls in Northern Ireland showing a small majority in favour of unification. So some people are saying, oh, look, Star Trek has, you know, has got it exactly right. But that is, as I say, mostly the exception. For the most part, science fiction writers, even though they may be setting their stories in the future, are really writing about the present. So if we were to use science fiction to predict the future, how might we go about that? Well, I think there's three ways to use it. The first is, as I say, because it's talking about current trends and current preoccupations, it very often kind of bubbles those up or takes those forward. So it can be used as a sort of horizon scanning tool and to figure out sort of which current social trends might blow up, where they might go, what might happen. So there's quite a lot of science fiction that addresses gender. So I'm thinking of, for example, Anne Leckie's trilogy, Ancillary Justice, a really interesting aspect of that book. It's about AI, it's about slavery, but it's also about gender because much of the book happens in 
parts of the universe where the language that's used doesn't distinguish between genders. So you find a lot of the time you're trying to figure out what gender characters are. And after a while, you stop trying because you realize it doesn't matter. And that's the point she's making. And that's very, very clearly a commentary on and a reaction to what's going on at the moment with people sort of reassessing the very simplistic sets of boxes that we tend to put people in for gender and sexuality. So spotting kind of what's happening in the world now, it can be useful for that. Okay, but does thinking outside the box, letting loose the imagination in the way that that's a good example that you just cited, does that help come up with concepts and ideas that can be practically useful today? Well, a lot of companies think it can. So another trend that we're seeing is companies actually paying sci-fi writers to kind of write scenarios, write fiction, imagine products. And so a good example of that would be Arup, an engineering firm, and it commissioned a sci-fi writer called Tim Morn to create four scenarios of what every life might look like as a result of climate change. And so you know, he writes those and he's used to doing this as a sci-fi writer, imagining it. Similarly, Neil Stevenson, who's a you know very famous author, has written bestsellers like Snow Crash and Cryptonomicon. He's an advisor to Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos's rocket company. And he's also an advisor to Magic Leap, which is building these augmented reality glasses. So his ability to imagine the sort of, you know, the metaverse, the cyber future 15, 20 years ago, clearly means that people want to hear what he has to say about what might happen next. And we see this with big Silicon Valley giants having sci-fi authors come in and talk to them, have them you know, develop scenarios, imagine future products and so on, just to get their engineers thinking about things they might not have thought about. And you mentioned there's a third way science fiction can be used. What's that? Well, this is probably the place where there's the most direct connection between what science fiction depicts and what people actually build. And that is if you look at the people who run the tech industry, and they're mostly men, they mostly grew up reading science fiction. And in many cases, they have been inspired to build the things that they saw or read in science fiction. So just to give a few examples, the flip phone, the Motorola flip phone, was inspired by the flip-open communicators in Star Trek. So the people at Motorola who built those phones were like, wouldn't it be awesome if we could have that? If you also look at Star Trek again, um, the talking computer that has this sort of rather robotic voice. James D. Kirk, serial number SC937. It talks, the interface of the computer is talking. That was the inspiration for the Echo, the Alexa voice assistant at Amazon. We know that that Jeff Bezos is a massive sci-fi fan. If you look at Elon Musk, he's a big fan of the sci-fi of E&M Banks, and he actually has named the drone ships that his rockets land on after ships in Ian Banks's books. And then he's also got this company called Neuralink, which is trying to build brain interfaces. And Elon Musk calls them neural laces. And that's the exact terminology that the same technology is called when it appears in Ian Banks's book. So these really are people who grew up reading science fiction and now want to make it real. So one thing we can be sure of is that, you know, the tech titans of tomorrow are surely going to be reading sci-fi today. So a company's not restricted to doing blue skies thinking anymore. It's more like blue intergalactic thinking, isn't it? Absolutely. Sci-fi just encourages you to think big. And in fact, when I was uh, doing a special report on AI a couple of years ago, I made a point of asking various luminaries in the field what their favourite sci-fi was. And I asked Demis Hassabis of DeepMind, I said, I assume you're inspired by Isaac Asimov's robot stories, which have been a great inspiration to you know people trying to build AIs. And he said, no, they're for children. And he much prefers Asimov's Foundation series. 
And in fact, that was the set of books that was sent in digital form into space by Elon Musk when he sent a car into space, you may recall. Now, this is a slightly um, scary <laughs> choice for both of them because it's about the, the Foundation Trilogy is about the development of this science of psychohistory that allows people to kind of perfectly quantify and predict human history. So there's a slightly worrying megalomaniac kind of element to the fact that both of these people who are very keen on changing the world through technology cite that as their favourite kind of science fiction. That's quite an insight. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. That's all for this edition of The World Ahead. If you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer. It's 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>